0: particularly on Sunday morning and so it's a privilege and joy to be here to celebrate and to think of God's Word together. Because man must not live on bread alone but on every word that comes from the mouth of God please take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 we're gonna look at verses 15 to 21 this morning so I'll be reading those verses Matthew twelve, fifteen to 21. Last week, we learned that we could rest in Jesus because not only does he keep the Sabbath, but he is Lord of the Sabbath, Lord over the Sabbath. And this week, Matthew cuts in into the Jesus story as Jesus withdraws. Matthew cuts into the story to make a connection to a prophecy that was written 700 years before Jesus was on the scene here on earth. And we read that prophecy from Isaiah 42, but Matthew cuts into it here. And so we're going to look at Um, This prophecy that Matthew brings to mind and even consider why he brings it to mind So follow along as we listen and think on and hear Matthew chapter 12 verses 15 to 21 Jesus was aware Of this aware that they wanted to kill him Jesus was aware of this and withdrew large crowds followed him and he healed them all He warned them not to make Not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet, Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that... You spoke these words 2,000 years ago, and Matthew quoted a text that was spoken 2,700 years ago. At least it was written. And so we thank you that we can meditate on your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in your word. Incline our hearts to your testimony and not to dishonest gain or material gain. Turn our eyes from looking at vain and worthless things and give us life in your ways. Give us hope in your justice, in your truth and in your love, and most of all, in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that your Holy Spirit would help us now. We are desperate for him, because apart from you, we can do nothing but waste our time with worthless thoughts in this hour. So help us, we pray. Give us your strength and your focus, and guard us from the evil one and from distraction, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It has been popularly said and stated again and again, Life is unfair. The world is unfair. Life is unfair. Deal with it. Get over it. What do you think about that statement? Life is unfair. So deal with it. One of the passages in the Bible that bugs me most when it comes to things being unfair is the story of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20. In 2 Kings chapter 20, Hezekiah is given a 15-year life extension after being on his deathbed. And in that 15 years of life, he prays to God, well, he prays for an extension because of his service to God. And in those 15 years, he does the worst thing that he's ever done in his life, at least that we know of, which is um, compromise and boast and arrogantly show off the riches and wealth of his palace to the Babylonians, an up-and-coming nation nearby, but still not a powerful nation in Hezekiah's time. And so, because of that arrogance, this is what um, uh, Isaiah came and told Hezekiah, what did you show them? He said, I showed them all of it, all of my wealth, everything. And Isaiah said, because you showed them your wealth, or because of this, they will take your wealth. They will take everything here in the palace and in Jerusalem and conquer Jerusalem. And this was Hezekiah's response to that rebuke. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. And then the writer comments, for he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my lifetime. That bugs me. That Hezekiah does something foolish, does something that's going to bring part that contributes to the disaster and judgment to come. It wasn't the only thing, but one of the things that contributes to the judgment to come. And when he gets rebuked, instead of feeling convicted and repentant, he says, well, that's good. At least it's not coming in my lifetime. And I'm like, ah, oh, get him, Lord. It feels so unfair. It bugs me because Hezekiah did wrong, and he won't face the consequences. Following generations will. It seems unfair. It seems unjust. And there are injustices in our world today as well. We don't have to just go to the Bible times. We can go to today. Are there injustices in your life? in our community, in our society today that hurt and harm people you care for? Neighbors you know or even neighbors you don't know? Are you experiencing the brokenness of this world? The unfairness of this world in your situation and particular season of life? Maybe you're going through something really, really difficult in these days. Where are the things that are just not right in you personally? Whether in your in in your physical state your spiritual state your emotional state or your mental state where are things just not right before i continue to decry hezekiah i need to often remind myself and admit that i want the same pass that hezekiah got he kind of got a pass on his sin and did not have to face the consequences of it and even though it angers me i look at the lord and i sort of plead for the same pass don't i don't you we're angry when it, when it comes to other people, but maybe when it's for us, we, we want that grace and that pass. That just shows that some things are not only broken in the world, but some things are broken in my own life, in the inconsistency and hypocrisy of my anger. We want fairness in many ways. We want justice. Shall we desire justice? Do we really want justice? Is that a good thing to want, yes or no? yes. yes. Part of us hesitates because we know that that justice will also be aimed at us, right? What is justice? Justice means, when I say justice here biblically, and this passage is about justice, justice means things are right and fair, and they are the way that they ought to be. With God in the center, everything harmoniously in right relation to God and to everything else. D.A. Carson defines justice this way. It's righteousness broadly conceived as the self-revelation of God's character for the good of the nations, yet at the same time calling them to account. So it's with God in the center, God revealing his righteousness, his character, and it, it, it leads to the good of everyone in right relationship to God, to one another, to their situation, and to the world. That is justice. Now, we face enough injustice and brokenness in this world to make us not only feel discouraged, but if we let that discouragement sit, it can actually lead to cynicism and maybe at its worst, hopelessness. Do you ever feel hopeless? Do you feel hopeless about certain things in your life or hopeless in general? We may doubt that things will ever be made right. Life is unfair and and life will never be fair, we may think. But God doesn't want us to lose hope. He doesn't want you to lose hope. Hope. Matthew wrote this passage so that you would more deeply experience the hope of justice in Jesus. And so that is the main goal, I think, of Matthew's intention for his readers and for us today, that you would more deeply experience the hope of justice in Jesus. More deeply experience the hope of justice in Jesus. Now, why? Why can we have hope of justice in Jesus? The answer is because Jesus fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy. That's why you can hope for justice in Jesus. Now, we're going to answer two questions to unpack this text before us. We're going to ask two questions and answer them. What did Jesus fulfill, and how did Jesus fulfill it? Okay. What prophecy did Jesus fulfill? That's point number one, or question number one. And question number two, how did Jesus fulfill this prophecy? So let's first think about what prophecy... Jesus fulfilled. And that's in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12 with me. And verse 17 says that the prophet, the, the, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the prophecy Here, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he'll proclaim justice to the nations. Here's the prophecy. So Jesus was, um, let me just recap the story for you. Remember, Jesus was in the synagogue. And he healed a man, and so they they plotted on the Sabbath to kill Jesus, and because they did that, Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew from them, because so he wanted to avoid them and avoid the conflict. And as he avoided them, he started healing people everywhere in Galilee. And as he was healing everyone, he was telling everyone he was not only healing everyone, he was hushing everyone. He would tell them to be quiet, don't don't say anything, don't 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 tell anyone what I've done. He warned them. He ordered them sternly to not share what was happening. And so Matthew sees what's going on here. He recounts when he was walking with Jesus these events. And then he says, you know what? This was to fulfill this prophecy of Jesus. Now, this prophecy is uh, in Isaiah. And we could just maybe do a short application here even before we continue. What this teaches us already, Matthew looking at a passage or looking at a situation, he realizes it's fulfilling the Old Testament we could ask ourselves a question. How well do you know your Old Testament? How well do you read your whole Bible and understand the stories of the whole Bible and not just the New Testament? Now, of course, our focus should be on Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. That is the climax and the mountaintop of divine revelation. And yet, we should know the story of the whole Bible that we might know Jesus more. And so I want to challenge you to read and learn your Old Testament better. But continuing on now, Let's look at this prophecy from Isaiah. Look at verse 18. So what did Jesus fulfill? Verse 18 says, Hear my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. You guys see verse 19? You see what's characteristic of this prophesied servant? He will not argue or shout and no one will hear his voice in the streets. That prophecy sparked Matthew to think, that's what Jesus was doing here. By avoiding the fight, by avoiding those who were going to kill him, by healing people and then hushing them and telling them to not say anything to anyone, by telling them to, to be quiet and warning them, he was fulfilling the 700-year-old prophecy that the servant would come and he wouldn't argue. He wouldn't shout in the streets. His, his voice wouldn't be heard, which actually goes into a deeper prophecy. So before we get into this prophecy, and I want to unpack this prophecy with with three ideas about the hope of justice, let's first think about who this prophecy is about. Look at verse 18. This is the servant of Yahweh. This is, so it's Yahweh's servant. He's serving Yahweh, and he's serving Yahweh's purposes. He's serving Yahweh's plan. And then in verse 18, he is the chosen servant of Yahweh. God the Father, or God chose this servant for his purposes. And then we get this statement about this servant. This servant is my beloved in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased. What does that remind you of? Does that remind you of anything? This servant in whom God delights, his beloved in whom he's well pleased. That could remind you of two different events. What events? The baptism of Jesus, when the heavens parted and he came out of the water, and and the voice came from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then a second event, on the mount of the mountain what happened in that mountain the transfiguration where jesus was transfigured his figure was transformed before them and god rebuked um, peter james and john really peter who was speaking out of turn and said listen to my voice this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and here you see that this is actually rooted in the prophecies of Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, God dearly loves this, this servant. And about this servant, maybe a, a more accurate accurate translation. Um, I like the CSB, but it's not always perfect, and I think that they translated this a little bit too loosely. The way I would translate my beloved in whom I delight is my dearly loved one. You could say my beloved. We just don't use that word as much today. My dearly loved one in whom my soul delights. My soul delights. Not just I delight in him, but my soul. Does God have a soul? It's kind of weird that God is saying, my soul delights in this servant. This, this, I mean, has, has God put his, and then it says, um, I will put my spirit on him. Has God put his spirit on any other servants in the Old Testament? Yes or no? Has God chosen anyone in the Old Testament? Yes or no? Besides this servant? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Has God, um. Yeah, so God has chosen him. He's had servants. He's put his spirit on on King David when he killed Goliath before he was king. He put his spirit in Moses and other servants, and these were his choice servants. But what makes this servant different? It's that this soul is his dearly loved one in whom his soul delights. This makes this servant unique from other servants. Listen to what John Piper writes about this phrase, my dearly loved one in whom my soul delights. John Piper says, surely what God means when he speaks of delighting in Jesus with his soul is that that this joy, this pleasure, is part of God's very nature. Or to put it another way, God the Father loves the Son with spontaneous pleasure. When he beholds the Son, he sees that which by nature brings forth his most passionate enjoyment, which means that God the Father would be an idolater unless what he saw in his son was the image of his own glory. Jesus is God's greatest delight because Jesus is God. And the spring of Jesus' life is that he is chosen, loved, and enjoyed by God as God. From that relationship flows everything that Jesus is and Jesus does. End quote. This servant is special. Moses was special. Elijah was special. Abraham was special. David was special. Daniel was special. Joseph was special. Isaiah was special. But Jesus was extra special. In this servant, God's soul, his very nature of who he was, delighted in this servant. And what is the purpose of this servant? God gives his spirit, puts his spirit on the servant to do what? Let me read verses 18b all the way to 21, and I want you to tell me, summarize in one or two words what this servant was supposed to do. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in him. Okay, so what is this servant supposed to do with his service? Anyone? Proclaim and, bring Proclaim and bring justice? Okay, anyone else want to say a different word? Proclaim, justice, bring justice. Anything else? Hope? Yeah, I think hope is the other term here. So if you look at it, you see justice in verse justice in verse 18. Justice again in verse 20. So there's going to be justice. He's proclaiming justice to the nations. And what do the nations do in verse 21 with this justice? What do the nations do in verse 21? They put their hope. So why, is it ho- why does it say that, why, do- why-, why does justice produce hope? This is why I'm calling this sermon, or at least a main idea of the sermon, is the hope of justice. The nations are hearing about justice from the servant, and they're putting their hope in this justice that this servant is proclaiming. So I want us to think about justice and hope, or what I'm calling the hope of justice. And what we'll see here in verses 18 through 21, we'll see the hope of justice. I'm sorry, we'll see we'll see um, the hope of justice proclaimed in verse 18 and 19, and then you'll see the hope of justice experienced in verse 20, and then you'll see the hope of justice anticipated in verse 21. Or another way to say it is not only hope of justice proclaimed. Experienced and anticipated, but Jesus the servant proclaims the hope of justice. He administers or he applies the hope of justice, and then Jesus secures the hope of justice. Let's think about these um, as we go through this prophecy quoted by Matthew. So, first, Jesus proclaims the hope of justice, verses 18 and 19. So, look at verse 18 again. It says, He will proclaim or he will preach or he will announce justice to the nations. What is justice? Justice is making everything right. So if everything is to be made right in justice, what happens to everything wrong? Well, everything wrong is made right. What happens to every wrongdoer who has done wrong when justice comes? What happens to the wrongdoers? They will be punished, right? And so justice, the announcement of justice is the announcement of judgment. It's the announcement of judgment for wrongdoers and for the wrongs they have committed. So here's the announcement. Good news, nations. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming. Those who have done wrong will pay for their wrongdoing. Oppressors will be overthrown for their oppression and they will receive just consequences. They might might have gotten away for a long time, maybe in their lifetime, but judgment is coming. Righteousness is coming. Justice is coming. There is a judgment day coming. And we learn about this judgment day in Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24, right? Where where Jesus says, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, because you did not repent. And so the good news, the hope of justice is that wrongdoing will be made right. And wrongdoers will face the right consequences for their wrongdoing. This is not new to our church family. We confess this as a church. In our confession of faith, we confess this our article on judgment. God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world by Jesus Christ when everyone shall receive according to his deeds. The wicked shall go into everlasting conscious punishment, the righteous in their glorified bodies into everlasting life in the new creation. Justice will be served. Judgment will be judged and decided by King Jesus who is the perfect, righteous, and just judge. Does it bug you when people get away with crimes? I kind of get a little fascinated by these documentaries on on, um, serial killers and those who commit crimes for so long. There's one serial killer here described on Wikipedia. Serial killer, serial rapist, and a burglar who committed at least 13 murders, 50 rapes, and 120 burglaries in the 1970s and 80s. And you know what his punishment was? Well, first he got caught 30 years after the events, when he's already in his 70s, and you know what his punishment was? Prison for how long? For life. How many more years does this mid-70s-year-old man have of life to be punished for 50 rapes, at least 50 rapes, 13 murders, and 120 burglaries? After getting away for over 30 years with not being caught and enjoying freedom in society that's angering right i mean that's frustrating and life imprisonment doesn't do justice for the 13 who were killed and those who were raped and traumatized for the rest of their lives because of this man and so the good news that this servant says is justice is coming he's proclaiming justice to the nations not just for israel but for all ethnic people groups now, we learn how does this proclamation come, or how does this proclamation not come according to verse 19? How will he not be proclaiming justice? He won't be arguing, it says in verse 19, he won't be shouting, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, this is probably referring to the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, won't be arguing and taking his opposition head on prematurely. Jesus won't be fighting with his persecutors with his opposition. He's not bringing his righteousness and justice with a whole army behind him to just wipe out all the Pharisees and wipe out all the Sadducees and kill all the Romans who oppose him and just set up his just kingdom. He's not coming like that. He's not coming to argue or shout. His voice won't be heard in the streets. He's not bringing this big flashy military campaign to bring in judgment and righteousness. That's what some people expected in Jesus's day. He's not coming with that though. He's coming quietly. Not arguing, not shouting, humbly, nonchalantly proclaiming judgment, justice, and righteousness. So this is justice proclaimed. Jesus proclaims the hope of justice in an unjust world. The second thing Jesus does, though, according to verse 20, is Jesus applies the hope of justice. This is justice experience. Jesus applies the hope of justice, or he administers justice to people. Look at verse 20. He will not break a bruised reed. And he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. A bruised reed and a fading or smoldering wick. Now, a reed was a stick that was used for measuring, measuring things. Measuring things or holding things up. And when the reed, if you so you could just, you know, grab a reed off of a lawn, you know, off of, there's not paved roads and things, there's reeds everywhere, just grab a stick and use it for measuring. If that reed is bent and breaking, but not quite broken yet, what should you do? If you, if you needed a measurement and you're using this reed for a measurement, what should you do? If you had a ruler that was broken and bent and you use it for measuring and drawing straight lines and your ruler was bent, what would you do? Chuck in and get a new one, right? It's not a big deal. There's a lot of places you can get another measuring stick. Just if it's bent, break it off, throw it away, discard it, and replace it. That's what you could do. It's easier to replace it than to fix it. A bruised or broken stick seems like it's not worth the time and trouble to fix it. It's easier to replace it. What about a a smoking flax or a smoking wick, a smoldering wick? So if you have a, you guys know this, right? If you light a match... It starts with a, a quick flame and it slowly fades out and then it has a little bit of glow and then the, the smoke ascends from the match. Well here, they had oil lamps with a wick. You just get a piece of cloth, you cut it off and you dip it into the oil and you put it, stick it out of the lamp and then you light it. And if you don't cut it well, or you don't, you don't cut it as it's, as, it's, um, as it's not being used, then it doesn't burn well. And it's really cheaply made. Just cut another piece of cloth, put it in, replace the wick and now you have an oil lamp. But what it's saying here about this Messiah is he doesn't just discard these wicks. He doesn't just cut a new piece of cloth. It seems like a smoldering wick is not worth the time and trouble to revive. But here, this servant will not break and discard, he won't break and discard a bruised reed, a bent reed. He won't toss out and replace a smoldering, smoking wick that is so easy to replace. In other words, this servant Jesus is committed to kindness. He promises patience. Now, this is good news because you are these broken reeds, or you are these bruised reeds. You are these bent reeds. You are the smoldering wick in your life. You're a bruised reed if you've if you're um if you are feeling like life is being crushed out of you and you you don't feel like you're at full strength you feel really weak and stumbling along in your christian life feeling convicted and crushed under the weight of guilt and sin and inconsistency and hypocrisy you can be a bruised reed you can be a smoldering wick where your light is fading your passion for God is fading. Your, your light shining to other people is fading and dimming out or even just a small little glow and there's more smoke than light and heat and the effectiveness and value of what you're bringing in your interactions is fading and Jesus doesn't break off and discard the bent reed and he does not put out and extinguish the smoking flax or the smoking wick and just throw it away. He's committed to kindness. He promises patience. Are you discouraged today in your Christian life? How are you doing with your encouragement? Are you discouraged? Are you more encouraged or discouraged today? Some of you are more encouraged, but a lot of you are more discouraged today. Are you in a spiritual low? Perhaps you're wrestling with guilt and sin in your life today. Are you feeling hypocritical? I'm feeling freshly hypocritical this morning after teaching the Church Covenant class. I was teaching the Church Covenant class for membership considered, and we're going through the covenant as I'm reading through some of these promises. I'm like, ah, oh, I sinned against you, Lord, here, not only as a member, but even as a pastor. But one of them was like, praying diligently for the members, we'll pray for one another. I was like, ah, oh, I failed this week, sinfully failed. Not just, not just sort of failed. I sinfully failed in not praying faithfully as a pastor and as a member for the members this week. Broken. Bruce Reed, bent, not quite right in his pastoral ministry and his membership ministry this week. Are you feeling hypocritical? Are you feeling inconsistent and unfaithful in your Christian life? Do you think Jesus has ran out of patience for you? That he's had it up to here with you and he's done with you? Do you think that you're too much trouble for Jesus and you're not worth the time and trouble? It's just easier to replace you than to continue on with you with your weak Christianity as you've lived it out in your life. For Jesus, brothers and sisters, listen to this if you're a Christian. For Jesus, it is worth the time and trouble to revive you. For Jesus, it's worth the time and trouble for him to encourage you, to mend you, to restore you, to protect you, to nurse you, to strengthen you, and to raise you up again. When Jesus sees you, for him, it is worth it. Christ is compassionate. He cares for you. He's patient. He's attentive to the details of your life. He cares for the brokenness of your current situation, not just of those who are hurting you, not just from the situation that's broken around you, but from the brokenness that comes from your own sinful, selfish heart. He cares for all of that. He cares for you in your bruised pain and your fading light and your fading fire. The coolness as the heat fades. He cares about you. He cares about broken people, bruised people, fading people. Now at this point, how, are, how strong are the disciples spiritually? The 12 disciples. At this point in Jesus' ministry, how strong are they? Are they really strong or are they really weak spiritually? They're really weak. They don't even understand Jesus, right? I mean, the disciples are weak. There's one who's going to betray them. These disciples aren't even sure if he's the Messiah. They're sort of sure. They're following him with their lives. They're, They're kind of sure, but they're really not sold yet. They haven't been given that blessing of revelation quite yet. They're going to get that in Matthew 16, but they don't have it at this point. And even in Matthew 16, after Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Peter's still going to go on to deny Christ how many times? Three times, right? These disciples are weak. They're fading. They're unstable. Peter, the leader of them, is weak and fading and unstable. He's a fading wick. And yet these 11, because Jesus does not break off a Bruce Reed, because he doesn't replace a smoldering wick, these 11, 11 of the 12 disciples, become the foundation, the rock-solid foundation of the church, according to Ephesians chapter 2. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. These weak reeds and these fading wicks become the foundation of the church that Bethany Baptist Church is built upon. Wasn't Paul a broken reed? Or wasn't he a bruised reed? You could almost say he was worse than a bruised reed. He was actually even worse than a smoldering wick. He was persecuting the bruised reeds, right? He was trying to kill the smoldering wicks. And yet Christ had compassion on him. Christ cared for him. Christ knocked him off of his horse, shone a light in Acts chapter 9, and saved Paul. And showed him that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the the hope of Israel. Because Jesus cares for us. He even cares for non-Christians that he's going to convert to himself. Think about your life. I think about one of our former members in my previous church. Who was, let's just call him Adam. Adam was overcome by sin and lust. He was then overcome by fornication with a girlfriend and he was committed to living with his girlfriend and staying with his girlfriend and still saying that he was a Christian. We confronted him one-on-one, a few of us. The leaders confronted him. Our church family pursued him for two months or three months. We, we, we voted to excommunicate this brother named Adam from our church. And I think four or five years later, out of the blue, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, working on my doctorate. In the middle of the night, I get a phone call, and I see his name on my phone. Adam of Eden, we'll call him. I see my phone, Adam of Eden. It's early in the morning. This has to be, I just thought immediately, okay, God is doing something. You don't call your former pastor out of nowhere <laughs> early in the morning. Um, you know, so I'm like, okay, God is doing something. So pick up the phone. Adam of Eden says, hey, are you awake? I, I am awake. Yeah, what's going on? Uh, what, what's going on? Uh, I'm trying to join a church and I can't get over the fact that I've been excommunicated for my sin. And I've been trying to follow Jesus for several months. I've been trying to join a church for a long time, and I just can't find peace in my life because I know I was rightly excommunicated from the church. What do I do? What was Jesus doing? He wasn't breaking off the bruised reed and throwing him away, He wasn't extinguishing the smoldering wick. He was compassionate, He was caring, He was convicting. He was working in this brother. And this brother has been restored. is a faithful member of a church here in the area and is flourishing in his life and marriage. And his wife, who was his sexual immorality partner at the time, um, even when he was restored, she wasn't a Christian. She eventually became a Christian. Now she's flourishing in her walk with the Lord. Why? Because Jesus applies the hope of justice to broken, bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Now, some of you might think you're sidelined because of your sin. And what I'm telling you this morning is you're not sidelined. There is hope of justice. Jesus will apply the hope of justice to you. Jesus will apply mercy to you. You're not sidelined because of your sin. You're invited to experience the hope of justice in Jesus. Are you bruised? Here's what Rich- Richard Sibbs says in the book called The Bruised Reed and The Smoking Flax, which is why I keep on saying flax. Are you bruised? Richard Sibbs writes, be of good comfort. Jesus calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and go to Christ. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Is that sweet? There is more mercy in Christ than sin in you. This Jesus will apply mercy to you. This servant. Well pleasing, choice servant, spirit empowered servant of Yahweh will be merciful to you. Some of you may think you're no use to the Lord because of the season of life you're in. I'm elderly. My time has gone. I'm retired. I, I, I don't have the opportunities I used to have. Let me tell you, Jesus will not extinguish a smoldering flick, a smoldering wick, even if you're older. I tell you, the elderly members in our church, we've been praying for one who's even near death recently finish strong brothers and sisters finish your christian life strong christ will uphold you and he will not put out your smoldering wick your life will be used to hold up those coming after you with your legacy i still get strengthened by members who have passed away from this church who on their deathbed were terrified by death looking at me in the face and saying pj i'm scared to die like with their eyes just just terrified where it shakes my own soul. After which I just proceeded to read scripture to this sister and to see the immediate calm and Christ come around this sister to not extinguish the smoldering wick and not break this bruised reed, but to, to bring her confidence and strength to, for her at the very end, within, within a matter of five minutes or 10 minutes, to be able to look at me and be, I'm, to be able to say, I'm ready to die. And to finish strong, I'm sure that's going to uphold my life until I pass away. If you're elderly, brothers and sisters, finish strong. Your ministry will bless all of those coming after you. As when we get to that point, we will have to pass that on to the next generation as well. Jesus will not extinguish your wick. This will be part of your ministry and legacy. Perhaps you're not elderly, but you're busy. You're too busy to really be effective for Jesus. You're undisciplined. You're inadequate. You feel inadequate. You lack resources or gifting. Maybe you you think you lack opportunity. Your life and your opportunities are small and weak. Your spiritual strength is small and weak. Our Our church family, Bethany Baptist Church, is small and weak. But Jesus patiently comes to you. He patiently comes to us to serve us and strengthen us and hold us fast. Don't despise the days of small things, brothers and sisters. What seems insignificant to you, what seems smoldering to you, what seems bruised and useless and not worth it to you, is not what it, it's not what it is to Jesus. He sees value here. There is mercy in Christ. But I didn't say Jesus applies mercy. What did I say? Jesus applies the hope of what? Justice. Justice. If we're sinners, what, just, what justice do we deserve? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin, justice for our sin, our injustice towards God, in violating God, demands eternal death. What do you mean Jesus is applying the hope of justice? I can see Jesus applying mercy, but justice? Well, according to the Bible, the, the Hebrew word for, for justice is mishpat, And what Tim Keller says is is, it's more than punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their rights. Okay? It's not just punishing wrongdoing. It's giving people their rights. It means punishing. And he continues and he says, Mishpat means punishing wrongdoers and caring for the victims of unjust treatment. It's not only punishing wrongdoers, but caring for the victims of unjust treatment. That's what mishpat. That's what justice is. So Christ is not just compassionate towards us and merciful and gracious towards us. He is just towards us, in not extinguishing our smoldering wick, and in not breaking our bruised reed. Listen to First John one nine. What does First John one nine say? If we confess our sins, if you're sinning, you're bruised, right? If you're sinning, you're smoldering. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and... And what? Just. To what? Forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is not just the... The the faithfulness of God that forgives your sins. It is not just the mercy of Christ that forgives your sins. It's not just the grace of God that forgives your sins. It is the justice of God. It is the righteousness of God to forgive your sins. Righteousness? I thought the righteousness of God means I go to hell. It does, unless 1 John 2, 2 Right on the back of 1 John 1, 9 says, He himself is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. He bore the wrath of God on himself. Listen to Romans 3, 25 and 26. Talking about the cross. God presented Jesus as the mercy seat. Where the wrath of God is. The mercy seat, the propitiation, the wrath bearing uh, sacrifice. God presented Christ as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness his justice because in his restraint god passed over the sins previously committed that seems unrighteous you don't let adulterers go you don't let 50 time rapists overgo you don't let murderers go god not if you're righteous not if you're just you punish them but god passed over their sins why why did he pass over king david's conspiracy to murder and sexual assault and really oppressing Bathsheba, why why did God pass over that sin and let him continue to be king? Why? When he just literally wrecked a family. It says God presented Jesus on the cross to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice at the present time so that God would be just and justify the sinner who has faith in Jesus. God can justify sinners and be merciful to sinners and forgive sinners and lift up sinners and not break them but restore them and apply justice to them because Christ paid for their murders. Christ paid for their lust. Christ paid for their prayerlessness. Christ paid for their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness and their judgmentalism and their arrogance and their pride and their stubbornness and their gossip and their slander and their self-reliance. Christ died for all of their injustice toward God. Christ took that on the cross and God united us with Christ so that God can justify us. So that it's not only God's mercy that forgives you, it's not only his grace that restores you, it's his justice. You are united to Christ in his death. Your sins are paid for. You are united to Christ in his resurrection. The mercy The forgiveness, the strength, the encouragement that you receive is rightly owed to you because you are one with the resurrected Christ. Justice for Christians, those united to Christ, is good news because Christ took all the bad news of our sin on the cross. Does that make sense to you, brothers and sisters? If you're not a Christian, let me explain to you the gospel here briefly. Here's the gospel. God created us in his image. We just sang about it. We are, his crea- we are his creation and creatures. But we sinned against God. We've rebelled against God in our arrogance and our pride and our sin. And so God must punish us for our sins and judge us. That's the just and righteous thing to do for sinners like us. But God sent his son Jesus to, die on, to live the life we should have lived in righteousness, never sinning. He died on the cross for your sins. And he rose from the dead so that if you repent from your sins and trust in Jesus, uniting yourself to Jesus by faith, if God gives you that faith and if you'll turn from your sins and trust in Jesus right now, you'll be united to Jesus. And his death will be your death. His punishment will be your punishment. And his reward will be your reward. And God will forgive you and declare you righteous and give you his Holy Spirit and he'll live in you and transform you and apply the hope of justice to you right now and forever. He won't toss you out as a bruised reed. He won't extinguish you as a smoldering wick. He'll give you strength and hope now in this broken world and in your broken life into eternity on the new earth to come. So if you're not a Christian, I invite you this morning. God is inviting you. He's more than inviting you. He's calling you. He's commanding you to repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, the servant of God. Now, how long does this application of justice uh, continue for according to verse 20 he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until when look at verse 20 until when until when until he leads justice to what until he leads justice to victory maybe a, a stronger translation might say until he compels or causes justice to be accomplished to victory so justice is for what or it's until the point of what Victory. Justice is for victory. Now, this is strange because in Isaiah, it doesn't say justice until he leads justice for victory. It's until he leads justice for faithfulness or justice for truth. Why does, why does Matthew say justice for victory? Well, if God is faithful to his promise, did God promise faithfulness that's going to be victorious over something or someone? If God keeps his faithful promise to restore sinners to himself and to take them into a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem and a new city to live in new bodies forever, if God fulfills his promise of blessing cursed people, will that be a victory? Victory over what? Victory over sin? Victory over death? A victory over injustice and unfairness? And who is the who was the inciter of this unfairness and injustice? Who was the one who incited and tempted us? towards sin satan the serpent right in the garden of eden and god promised a threat to that serpent in the garden of eden that from the seed of this woman will come an offspring who will crush your head he will defeat you in victory and you will bruise his heel and so this battle between injustice and justice between the serpent the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman between the seed who would come and the serpent himself there would be this battle between sin and righteousness injustice and justice hope and despair condemnation and vindication eternal death and eternal life there'd be this battle that goes on and this servant would come and he would proclaim justice he would administer or apply justice and he would keep applying it until final justice is finally here and when will that come are we still is there still injustice in our lives today is there still injustice in our world today in Los Angeles today. Yes or no? Yes. So Jesus will keep administering justice and he'll keep applying it to bruised reeds and smoldering wicks until when? Until victory. And when is victory? When he comes in clouds descending. When he comes in clouds descending and Christ returns, he will come with a sword from his mouth to slay his opponents, to end injustice, to, to conquer the, the prop, the false prophet, the beast and the dragon and throw them into a pit, and establish the new heavens and the new earth forever. And until that time, brothers and sisters, Jesus will encourage you. He will strengthen you. He will apply the hope of justice to you and to our church family and to the nations until he returns. That's what he's going to do. So Jesus proclaims the hope of justice. Jesus Uh, applies the hope of justice and here thirdly in verse 21 Jesus secures the hope of justice what does verse 21 say of Matthew 12 look at verse 21 what does it say the nations will what the nations will put their hope in Jesus so Jesus secures hope it's not wishful thinking it's not maybe justice will come Maybe things will be made right. Maybe I'll may, all be made right. Maybe my relationships will be made right. Maybe this world will be made right. Maybe all injustice will end. No, not maybe. This is a sure and confident hope. Justice will come. And the nations, the Gentiles, the ethnicities, the ethnic people groups of the world will hope in a secure and sure justice. Why? Why will a new earth come? Because Jesus didn't stay in the grave. What happened on the third day? What did he do? What did Jesus do? He rose from the dead. And because Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus gives hope to the nations. He secured the hope of the nations in his death and in his resurrection. And so now we as his people become a community of hope. Is there reason for hopelessness in this world? There's reason for it, right? Is there reason for despair and discouragement in this world? Yeah, there's a lot of brokenness and gloom in this world. But for Christians, for the Christians among all the ethnic people groups of the world, there is hope because Jesus has come. He died on the cross for sinners and he rose from the dead. And so Israel will hope in the name of Jesus, but not just Israel, the new covenant Israel, made up of all the nations of the world, every tribe, people, tongue, and language, all language groups, some from every language group would come to know Jesus and find their hope in him. And this hope isn't here yet, but it will be in his return when he's coming back. And so we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But until then, Christ will hold us fast. When we fear our hope will fail, our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold us fast. We could never keep our hold through life's fearful path. For our love is often cold. He must hold us fast. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. For our Savior loves us so, he will hold us fast. Jesus loves you. He loves us and he will bring us to the end of our hope, finally realized. He doesn't want heaven without us. We're gonna sing that in a second. He doesn't. He loves us. He cares for us. He wants us. He will not extinguish us. He will hold us fast. But it's not just you that he's gonna hold fast. He's gonna hold fast people from all the nations every ethnic people group, which means we have to be praying for the nations because God promised not just that you'd be saved. In Genesis 12, he promised Abraham that through the nation of Israel, through the great nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we can't rest with just receiving hope for ourselves, right? We need to be instruments of hope. We need to love our neighbors with the hope of the gospel. We don't just hope in Christ. We extend hope for others in Christ. We extend hope to our neighbors here in Southeast LA County, We pray for missionaries and we wanna send missionaries all around the world to the unreached and unengaged ethnic people groups that they might have the hope that we are experiencing even this morning. So brothers and sisters, let's pour out our lives for this. Now that was our first and longest question. My second question is really is short. The first question is what does Jesus fulfill? The prophecy of Isaiah, the the, the hope of justice. Jesus will proclaim the hope of justice. Jesus applies the hope of justice. And Jesus secured the hope of justice. Now, how did he fulfill it? Well, I said his cross and resurrection, but look at verses 15 and 17. Let's just close here with thinking about verses 15 and 17. How does Jesus fulfill this prophecy of being quiet, of quietly being the servant to bring the hope of justice? It says Jesus was aware in verse 15 of the fact that they wanted to kill him, so he withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all, and then he warned them not to make him known. So that what was, pro- what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So how does Jesus fulfill this prophecy? By silencing those who are healed. That's how he did it. So what does that mean? Okay, Jesus, you're going to bring hope of justice. How are you going to do it? By silencing people you heal. How does that make sense? So this is one of the key questions, right? Why does Jesus silence those he healed? Now, we don't have a, in Mark, we have a, a more clear answer. Mark actually gives us a clear answer. This is called the messianic secret. That, that in Mark, Jesus did not want people to misunderstand his messiahship as a militaristic campaign to just conquer Rome. He didn't want to be seen as a military conqueror or a miracle worker and a wonder worker. And so for those reasons, Jesus told them to be quiet. He told demons even to be quiet and not tell others what he was doing. That might be what what Jesus is doing here. But there might be another reason why Jesus is telling them to be quiet. What did we learn from verse 14? What did the Pharisees want to do to Jesus? They were plotting to what? To kill him. And so perhaps Jesus was telling them to be silent, to kind of put a cap on his popularity and the spread of what he was doing so that he would not have to go to the cross prematurely. Now, I'm not sure which one it is, either it's, but here's why he's silencing them. Either one, it's so that he's not misunderstood in his teaching and his ministry, or number two, he's trying to keep from a premature death because he still has more teaching to do. He still has to prepare his disciples to carry on the mission for the hope of the nations. If he dies now with no disciples prepared to spread the gospel after he dies and rises and ascends, then they're not going to be ready for the Great Commission, right? So either way, how is Jesus fulfilling Isaiah 42? of securing the hope of the nations by silencing the healed. By silencing the healed. So that he could keep from a misinterpreted messiahship or so that he can keep from a premature death and fulfill finally and fully prepare his people, his disciples, for one, his death and resurrection and for their mission that's going to follow his death and resurrection. In other words, for Jesus to fulfill the justice-securing prophecy of Isaiah 42... He has to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And he needs time to prepare his people to be ready for his cross and resurrection and to proclaim that cross and resurrection. And So that's what Jesus is doing. Isaiah 42, 2 says, he will not cry out or shout out and make his voice heard in the streets. Isaiah 53, 7 says the same thing. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her her shearers, he did not open his mouth. So Jesus not only proclaimed justice and experienced justice, or we don't have, and applied justice and um, secured justice. He arranged for justice by silencing the healed. Jesus arranges for the hope of justice. He withdrew for now. He hushed the healed. He carefully arranged for his plan and for his timing of the ultimate sacrifice. And what is that ultimate sacrifice that we've already said many times here already? Isaiah 53:8 and 9 says this. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate. For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned the grave with the wicked. But he was pierced, Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So brothers and sisters, experience more deeply the hope of justice in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of the hope of justice for the nations. The hope of justice was proclaimed. It was, it's experienced by us. It's anticipated when he comes again. And it was arranged by his silencing of the healed for that moment. So let's hope in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And so we now have an unshakable hope in the trials and the discouragements of our current moment. So let me call you to this final application or final exhortation. God invites you to freshly experience hope in Jesus. Go to him for encouragement. Go to him for strength. Go to him for justice applied to you. If you fail to experience hope in Jesus, then your trials, your sin, and your brokenness will pull you deeper and deeper, from frustration, to doubt, to hard-heartedness, and ultimately to hopelessness. But you don't have to be hopeless. Because Christ died and rose for us and secured our hope, if you hope in Christ, even through your discouragement now, you will experience his sweet patience and love now. You'll experience strengthening toward a legacy beyond your imagination, even on your deathbed. And you'll experience his overwhelming love in fullness when he returns. Jesus is coming soon to save and to judge in full and complete justice. Life isn't fair. Maybe more accurately, life isn't fair for now. The world is is unjust in some ways for now. But the new creation is just and righteous. And at its heart, this divine justice, fairness, and salvation is experienced now in our brokenness. And it will continue to spread, this justice will continue to spread as the gospel spreads until Christ returns. So trust in this truth, brothers and sisters. The peoples, the ethnic people groups, your church family will hope in the name of Jesus. Father, thank you for the hope of Jesus. Give us faith to hear the proclamation of Jesus that the hope of justice is coming. Help us to experience the hope of justice as Jesus applies it to us. Help us to confidently look to the future of Christ's return. And help us to even be thankful that Christ arranged in his earthly ministry to make sure he did not die prematurely or was not misunderstood so that he can fully accomplish the hope of justice for us. Help us to hope in him now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take two minutes now. Normally we do four minutes, but we're going to do two minutes because we have to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let's take two minutes now to share with someone around you one thing that God pressed on you, one of your takeaways or one of your questions from the message. And then um, if you're a guest, feel no obligation to share. You could just introduce yourself to the person around you and listen in on a conversation. And in two minutes, we'll prepare for the Lord's Supper. And if you're assigned to the Lord's Supper, you need to prepare now. One more minute to share. So switch if you haven't switched already. Angela, you might start putting the cups out all right brothers and sisters I'll encourage you to continue to uh, share more after you could, I want to encourage you to continue the conversation after uh, the gathering even as you engage people you haven't met before but for now hear God's word from 1 Corinthians 11 verse 27 it says this, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks from the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We're about to take the bread and the cup here of the Lord's Supper. So this is not for everyone. It's only for sinners. If you don't think you're a sinner, it's not for you. It's only for sinners. But it's not for every sinner. It's for sinners who have repented from their sins and have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So if you're not a Christian, you haven't repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and treasure, then we're gonna ask you to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper this morning. Actually, God commands you and instructs you to not take from the Lord's Supper this morning. But there's also one more group. If you are a Christian but you haven't been baptized or you're not a member of a church and you're not a member of a church that preaches the same gospel you heard preached here this morning, then we're going to ask you as well to refrain from taking the Lord's Supper this morning. As it says here, if you drink without recognizing the body, not just the body of Christ hanging on the cross, that hung on the cross, but the body of Christ the church as those two things are connected in First Corinthians chapter 10. So if you're not a member of a church yet, and you haven't been baptized, then we're going to ask you to refrain. Become a Christian first if you're not a Christian. Repent and believe in Jesus. Join a church. Get baptized. And whenever you visit us, we take the Lord's Supper every week. You'll always be welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. We're going to take a moment now to pray. Well, let me read um, what Jesus says here, then we'll, we'll pray. It says, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these true words. They're very familiar to us who've been Christians for a long time, but we don't want to get overly familiar with them. We thank you for this bread, which is your body given for us. We thank you for this cup, which is the new covenant in your blood. We thank you for the way that these things help us to remember these truths and symbolize these truths and help us to experience even now your presence with us as we trust you and trust these words. So help us, Lord, to commune with you together as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.